welcome, uh, welcome to uh, the Apocalypse of John, because uh, otherwise known as the Book of Revelation. Uh, so first things first is everybody have a study guide. Um, you should. Uh, and I'm going to, we'll have one of these for each class um, that you can use to fill out and do whatever you want to do with it. Um, pretty much this is going to be um, like a lecture. It's just lecture based. Um, so if somebody wants to pass this back to, pass back to the corner. Um, this is going to be lecture based. So there'll be, I mean, there'll be time for discussion and things like that, but um, and if you've taken one of my class, I, we took the Romans class uh, before. There was a lot of uh, a lot of kind of you know self discovery as part of the process because I was trying to uh, teach it like a seminary uh, class, like an intro to, to New Testament you know kind of class. This is like straight up lecture, but it is it is seminary level, okay? So this is this is what you would probably get. Um, if you went into uh, went to seminary and took a class on Revelation, for the most part. Um, not that I'm trying to toot my own horn, but <laughs> I did a lot of work on this class. <laughs> There's not very many books on Revelation that I haven't read. Okay, so um, all right. So um, I guess the big question that we probably need to ask, and um, and this is something that we can kind of do some participation. But, in, but you know, why why study this book? Like, what's your curiosity? You know, like, so what brought you to this class? It's so different from the rest of the New Testament. I totally don't get it. Right. It's, it seems completely foreign, you know, from the rest of the New Testament. <laughs> that is a really good question. That's a really good, uh, to know what it means. Like, what, you know, that's, that's going to be part of our exploration. Absolutely. Right. Um, to to explore, you know, we've always been fascinated by um, by dreams and you know by visions, imagination, you know, those kinds of things are you know have always it's been a part of of human existence for a very long time. What else? Yeah, it seems to be written in a code, right? And yet, the very name of the book would seem to contradict that, right? So we're going to dig into that. Like, what, you know, it's it's called the Apocalypse of John. Um, the Apocalypse is a Greek word that means revelation, which means, you know, which essentially means you know this, right? It has been revealed. And yet, when we read it, we're like, you, you, you ask that eternal and existential question, huh? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, any, other, any other reasons why, why to study this? Why have people, why has, has this become such a, um, an important book in the Christian tradition? Why has it become so important for Christians? Okay. Uh, stressful times, and and as we're going to discover, this book was written during stressful times, and it addresses sort of all stressful times, right? So 
throughout human history, there have always been stressful times. And we're going to discover today a little bit about um, the context of the book. Not a lot. We're going to go into more historical and contextual stuff next week as we, as we really dig into, you know, who wrote it, when was it written, who was it written to, what was that context like, all that. Um, so yeah, th there's it was written. So a lot of people also will want to study the book of Revelation because they want to know what is going to happen next, right? Um, people are always reading the signs uh, of the times, right? Um, you know, trying to to figure out what's going to, you know, what is when is the end coming? You know, when when is it all going to fall apart? You know, is is there something that comes after this? You know, what's 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 the deal with this whole thing that we call existence and life, the universe and everything? And so people are always searching for meaning, um, you know, in the things that are going on around them. And sometimes uh, the study of books like Revelation can help people sort of affix meaning to things that don't seem to have any meaning. You know, violence and war and and hatred and poverty and pestilence and disease and all the rest of it, right? It seems so arbitrary, random, and horrible. Um, and so trying to figure out and to affix meaning to it, um, being able to sort of say these things are happening because, right, something is, is coming, that, that helps people in a, in a strange way. It gives, it gives people a lot of hope. And so for centuries and centuries and centuries, um, people have been studying the book of Revelation and, and other, you know, and other apocalyptic books um, as well. So what exactly are we dealing with here when we deal with the book of Revelation? Okay, so this is essentially what the book of Revelation is all about. It's a vision that begins with a fiery, glowing Jesus it includes commands, warnings, and extravagant promises to seven church communities. Then, scenes of heavenly worship with crazy hybrid creatures, right? 24 Presbyterians, which is why I know that there are Presbyterians in heaven, uh, because it says that there are 24 elders, um, and the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. Uh, so there's at least 24 of us that get into heaven. So. <laughs> Only 24. <laughs> Only 24. There's hosts of angels and all of creation surrounding a bizarre seven-eyed lamb that has been slaughtered but is still standing along with a big to-do over a sealed scroll. Then there are crazy unnatural disasters unleashed on earth. Uh, and this is just a, a kind of a depiction of, you know, the, the return of, of Jesus here. Uh, there are un, un, crazy, unnatural disasters unleashed on earth after seven angels blow seven trumpets in front of an army of white-robed martyrs. There's a monstrous red dragon, star-crowned woman, uh, a seven-headed beast, a great city that actually looks like a gaudy hooker who is stripped and eaten by the dragon's beastly clone before becoming a city again and then going up in smoke. The heavenly beings cheer and then are off to an arranged marriage between the lamb and some other woman who's now not really a lamb, but a biped on a white horse in the air. That's what we saw just a little bit ago um, and, and looks uh, really dangerous like this. Uh, 
Then there's a huge battle between the lamb and the armies of the dragon, but there's no weapons except for the sword coming out of the lamb's mouth. Then the dragon is thrown to an abyss-like prison like the Kraken in Pirates of the Caribbean, and everyone is happy for a thousand years until the dragon is let out and has one more shot at mucking everything up before finally being annihilated in a fiery lake. Then there's a judgment where everyone is sorted out into their eternal destinies. Then the bride appears at last as a city, the new Jerusalem, coming from a new heaven to a new earth where God's kingdom is finally realized in what can only be described as an Edenic New York City. That's the book of Revelation in a paragraph. I worked really hard on that, by the way. <laughs> it's messed up, isn't it? Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about genre, you know, a little bit later on in our, in our time together. But this is not prophecy. I mean, this is not a prophetic book. It's, it's an apocalyptic book. So there's a difference between po- uh, uh, prophecy and um, apocalyptic literature. So um, apocalyptic literature uh, is uh, literature that is meant to describe uh, using word pictures and images and symbols um, things that you know either are happening um, or um, things that uh, are being imagined uh, for the purpose of exhorting uh, whoever is, you know, sort of listening and uh, and taking this all in, the reader, if you will, um, exhorting them to take some kind of action. Um, can anybody think of another uh, example of apocalyptic uh, literature in the Bible? Daniel. Daniel. So the book of Daniel is an, is an apocalyptic uh, book. Not all of Daniel is apocalyptic. I mean, uh, the first few chapters of Daniel, um, are they're actually, I mean, it's more, of, it's more of like a morality tale in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you have the, these characters that are, um, that are doing the right thing. They're standing up to oppression. They're standing up to... Um, people who are telling them that they cannot be Jewish. So the book of Daniel was written uh, during a time in Israel's history when uh, the Jewish people were being oppressed by what was left of the of the Greek Empire. Um, so it was the Syro-Grecian king. For those of you who have done my Romans class, you've heard this probably 50 times. But the Syro-Grecian king Antiochus Epiphanes um, was uh, was persecuting Jewish people. He was he made it illegal to be Jewish. Um, so you couldn't keep the Sabbath, you couldn't uh, eat kosher, uh, you couldn't circum- circumcise. He was trying to eradicate them. He wanted to assimilate them, not eradicate them like kill them, but eradicate their religion and assimilate them into Greek culture, which he thought was superior. Um, and so uh, the Jewish people, of course, as they've done throughout the centuries, resisted. Uh, and there were horrible stories. Uh, we don't have this in our version of the Bible, in the Protestant version of the Bible, but if you grew up uh, Catholic, um, the Catholic version of the Bible has uh, the books of Maccabees, and it includes these stories in there of some of the, the torture and some of the horrible things that happened to people. So um, the book of Daniel was written, first of all, to encourage people uh, to stand firm. You know, what does Daniel do? He's, he's uh, threatened with death and, uh, you know, from the king, and so he, he resists and says, I'm not going to... I'm not going to uh, bow to you. And then is thrown into the lion's den. You can come on in, Jim. I'll be right back. Okay, no worries. Um, 
He's thrown into a lion's den, right? And then God saves him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace, and God saves him, right? So, you know, there's there's this this sort of thing, like, if you stick to your guns, if you do what you're supposed to do, there's going to be deliverance. Well, the next part of the book of Daniel um, actually is apocalyptic literature because it's it's like an encouragement uh, to the Jewish people, saying, you know, there's, there's all these symbols of all these different kingdoms and all this different stuff that, um, you know that uh, you know the, the writer is is sharing, and, and the people that are reading those stories understand it. You know they get it. They get the word pictures. They understand what's being said. This is an encouragement to us to stand firm and to not assimilate. In the same way, the Book of Revelation is doing a very similar thing, right? And so, apocalyptic literature is is different than prophecy. Prophecy um, is uh, is actually not prediction either. You know, prophecy is um, a um, it's a proposal of a possible outcome, right? So the prophet says to the people of Israel, "If you don't change your ways, this is what's going to happen," right? And then there's a possible outcome that's laid out in terms of prophecy. Um, there's there's also prophecy that's positive. You know, in terms of um, laying out, you know, if you do what's right, here's what's going to happen as well. You know, so so there's, you know, prophecy in itself doesn't exactly predict the future, but it does if certain things, you know, take place, right? So it's kind of a weird, that that's a Jewish way of understanding prophecy. We have a different way of understanding prophecy, right? So we think of a prophet as somebody who's, you know, able to predict the future, but within the, the Jewish context, and even within the Christian context, um, there were people who were prophets that spoke prophetically to the church. Um, you know, so they would say to the church, if we don't do what we're supposed to do, then, you know, we're going to suffer this, this, and so. So anyway, that's kind of the difference between these two books. So it's not prophecy. It's not predicting a future. It's, it's an apocalyptic book, which is um, revealing to the reader some very important truths, right? So what draws people to this book? Well, we, we touched on it, trying to find meaning in a world gone mad. Um, so first century Christian readers who would have gotten this, this letter, um, and uh, we'll talk a lot about who wrote it. Uh, John the Revelator um, you know, was writing to seven churches in what is now Turkey. And so uh, first century Christian readers, they sought the book to find meaning in the face of Roman imperialism, persecution, destruction, materialism, hedonism, war, and idolatry. Right. So if you're a Christian and you are uh, trying to live in this context of the Roman Empire, you know, you, you guys have all, you know, I mean, you've, you've done your. You probably took your Western civilization class like back in back in the day, right? And studied some Roman Empire, um, and, and you're, you know, you, you, along the way, I mean, we get it, right? It was it was decadent. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of decadence, and uh, and uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities between you know ancient Rome and and us. <laughs> In a lot of ways, you know, so people outside of our context speak of us in the same way that the ancient Christians spoke of the Roman Empire um, with a lot of fear and dread and, and so forth um, because of the sort of hedonistic 
um, things that were part of their culture. Now, um, you know, the Christians of those days, the reason why they were facing persecution um, wasn't always from the emperor. The emperor, um, in some cases, like in Nero's case, at, at first was, was kind of indifferent to the Christians. Um, and and uh, it took something terrible happening in Rome, the, the great fire, uh, for uh, Nero to finally change his tune and begin to find a scapegoat. So then he blamed the Christians and then began persecuting so, um, and, and with varying degrees, I mean, people, you know, different emperors persecuted, but, but Christians were facing persecution because they were so completely different than the people that they were around. Um, they worshiped one God, which wasn't completely out of the blue, you know, because uh, Romans respected the Jewish religion uh, because it was an ancient religion. And even though it was monotheistic and Romans were not monotheistic, monotheistic meaning uh, that they worship one God, right? Uh, so the, you know, Romans worship many gods and ancestors, uh, and uh, you know, so they they weren't upset about them being monotheistic. What they were upset about was that this was a new religion, okay, um, that was worshiping one God, and they had strange habits, right? They uh, reportedly ate flesh and drank blood. And, um, you know, they, there was a, sort of a lack of hierarchy within their ranks. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they acted strangely because they, they kept some of the Jewish traditions, but then not all of them. And so um, the interesting thing is that most of the persecution that Christians faced came at the hands of their neighbors, um, you know, and the, the people that they, in their, their communities and their towns, because they were... Um, defying family values, and I—that's that, actually stuff that was that was written um, about uh, about Christians that they did not keep family values. So family values in in the the Roman context meant uh, that you worshipped your ancestors. Um, there was a very distinct hierarchy within the way that you lived your life, uh, and so forth. And so, uh, first-century Christians were reading this book. It was given to them in their, their context. They were reading it um, to find some meaning in the midst of all of the horrible things that are going on. Um, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, you know, had happened. I mean, and at least that's, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about context next week, and we can sort of argue, uh, we can see the arguments for and against when the, the book was written. I tend to, to fall on the, that it was a little bit later, um, and so the destruction of Jerusalem had already happened. So we're talking 70 A.D. at that point. Um, so then there's this upheaval, right, um, where these people are now adrift in this Gentile world, um, you know, and in a world that's that's really kind of um, uh, antagonistic to them. And so they're trying to find meaning and they're trying to hang on, uh, to hang on to what they're believing in. And the person who's writing it to them is writing it to them in order for them to do that. He's encouraging them, don't give up, don't give in. So uh, later, um, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, so this is, you know, uh, some 1,000 years later after, you know, the, well, 1,500 years later, I guess. Um, Martin Luther, he sought meaning in the book of Revelation in the face of the excesses of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, as well as the rising threat of Islam. Okay, 
So there were two things going on in his world. Um, he was really concerned about the what was going on with the Catholic Church. And um, so he saw in the Pope an Antichrist. In fact, that's how he referred to the Pope, um, was that the Pope was the Antichrist. Now, Luther, I think, was not reading it prophetically. I think he was reading it apocalyptically um, and kind of, and I think, understood that this was a way for him to, to frame their own context and, you know, and, and as a way for them to resist the Catholic Church and its excesses and, um, you know, what he believed, you know, was the church had been led down the wrong path, um, you know, by, um, you know, nefarious people and, you know, priests that were out for their own gain and so forth and so on, which to some extent he was absolutely true. Uh, and after the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church underwent its own reformation to correct some of those things. Um, we tend to think of that of that time as a pretty dark moment in Catholic history because it was during that was the time of the Inquisition. You know, so if anybody's ever seen that the great Mel Brooks <laughs> movie, The History of the World, <laughs> the whole dance number with uh, with the Inquisition, what a show! You know that whole thing. Um, so. But the Catholic Church went through its own Reformation as well. But Martin Luther, um, you know, so here it is. Okay, so we're going back to your comment about times of stress. Um, you know, so the first century Christians are in a time of stress. Martin Luther, uh, Europe is in a time of stress. There's all this upheaval because of the Catholic Church and and um, the rise of Islam. Right? Uh, so there was a time in medieval uh, Europe where people were writing about um, the rise of the Mohammedans as a scourge uh, against um, Christian, uh, Christian Europe because it had uh, failed you know, to live up to the standards that you know, we should be living as Christians. So it was punishment. Uh, the, the Muslims were punishment by God. Does that sound familiar? You know, like what happened in 9-11? Um, you know, there were uh, at least two very well-known uh, Christian leaders that came out and said uh, that this was punishment because of um, the America's um, you know, leniency when it came to uh, homosexuality and, and uh, LGBTQ uh, people. So uh, Martin Luther is trying to find meaning in the midst of that, and he uses uh, Revelation as a way to do that. Interestingly enough, um, Martin Luther actually couldn't stand the book of Revelation. Uh, but when, he, when, it, when it was necessary to prove his point, then he started using it. In fact, he advocated for it not to be included in the Protestant canon. Um, that would have been awesome if that had happened, if it had just stayed in the Catholic Bible, <laughs> because that would have solved so many problems, right, uh, within the Protestant world. But um, apparently God and God's infinite wisdom didn't want that to happen. All right, so uh, Martin Luther lost that argument, and uh, the revelation was included. We're going to also discover in our in this in in our uh, class how revelation got into the Bible, um, which is a very interesting interesting story. Okay, so uh, by the time you get to the 19th century, okay, so in the 1800s, readers were uh, using the Book of Revelation, not just readers but preachers, theologians, etc., were using um, the revelation in the face of the threat of a new power that was happening, a new upheaval. So think about it. Um, what was going on in the 19th century in Europe? 
that was causing so much so much dismay. Napoleon? Napoleon, right? So uh, Napoleon was now the Antichrist. And this is this is all in sermons, it's all in writings. I mean, people were, you know, they see, they see this. You know, Napoleon um, was, uh, you know, Hitler did not exist, right, yet. Um, so Napoleon was, was Hitler before there was Hitler. Um, and so... Uh, there was a world war in Europe that, that disrupted the lives of millions, and so people were seeking meaning um, in the face of that threat. So, as we all know, in the 20th century, people started to read um, the book of Revelation uh, and seek meaning in the face of World War I, um, and then ultimately in World War II, as Hitler then gets branded the Antichrist. Um, the rising threat of communism. Uh, imminent nuclear war, um, Israel's nationhood, um, rising globalization, declining morals. All those things are happening in the 20th century. And the interesting thing about it is, is that every sort of season, every time period, every age tends to think that it's the only, you know, this, is the, this has got to be <laughs> the moment when all of this is going to happen, right? You know, these are the end times. Right? So they did that in, you know, the 15th century, um, the 16th century, the 17th, I mean, all the way through, every sort of age of, uh, of development within the Christian world um, has, you know, has resulted in this renewed interest in Revelation. And the 20th century was full of those kinds of moments, right? Um, you know, because Hitler, of course, you know, was kind of the apex of that in the mid-20th century. And then, um, I remember when I was growing up, uh, the... There was a, there's a you will, we'll see them and and they pop up from time to time uh, in in different ages and, and they're interpreted differently. But there's a there's a uh, a nation in Revelation. It's called Gog and Magog. Um, that it's like this nation that, that comes to war. Um, and so they were always either it was those were supposed to be Russia and China, you know, um, back in the day. And the interesting thing, I'll, I'll I'll show you guys next week. I'm going to bring in a bunch of materials of some uh, of some books that were written during the like the 70s. Um, so there were books written during the 70s, and I and I, I went out. I, we we used to have copies of them when I was a kid. I remember seeing them, and I and I so I, we didn't have them anymore. At least I didn't have them anymore. But boy, you can find anything on the internet, and um, you can buy them used, man. <laughs> so uh, some of you probably remember a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Uh, it was written in the 70s, and then um, he wrote a follow-up book called There's a New World Coming. And um, I'll bring it next week. It, I was, I re, so I remember when I was a kid um, reading this comic book version of There's a New World Coming by Hal Lindsey that talked about the rapture and all this stuff. And we'll talk about the rapture as well. I know I'm saying we're going to talk about stuff, but we will. Um, and I remembered this comic book. And I was like, oh, I can't, you know, I barely remembered um, you know, what it looked like, whatever. So, of course, I went on the Internet, found it, and <laughs> bought a copy. Like, that was like this tattered copy that I now have um, of all these people in bell bottoms being snatched away to heaven. <laughs> so um, those are all things that people were, were, you know, trying to figure out. In the 21st century, and so even in the late, late 20th century and, and early 21st century, um, we start to see uh, the, the threat of radical Islam, Chinese economic imperialism, 
you know, uh, quote, unquote, quote, imperialism, persecution of Christians, Israel under attack, um, and so forth. So 1968 was, a, was a, an auspicious year. I was born. <laughs> but um, at the time, there were, off, there were awful things that were going on, right? So, I mean, think about the assassinations that happened in 1968. Who was assassinated in 1968? Martin Luther King and Kennedy. Okay. Bobby and Teddy. Right. So, you know, you have these high-profile assassinations of, of public figures that, that had a lot of hope had been placed on them. Then you have all the riots, you have all of the upheaval, um, you've got the war going on, the Vietnam War is kind of in the mid, you know, it's like at its, at its almost at its worst. Um, you know, and then on top of that, Israel is under attack, right? There's a war in Israel. So needless to say, that year was one where people were going nuts when they started reading the book of Revelation, right? Um, some other things that really kind of uh, were catalysts, of course, um, when uh, the uh, um, European Union was formed, there was a lot of people, there was a flurry of, you know, trying to, to interpret the European Union as, you know, this is, this is now, this has been predicted, and so forth and so on. So people are always trying to, um, to put meaning on this. And so now we see the same thing happening. There's a, there's a lot of people who are very interested in what's happening in Israel, not for, the, not for the sake of, not always for the sake of Israel's um, right to exist, right, and, and, their, and their sovereignty and so forth. But honestly, um, for the purpose of Israel being a catalyst to bring about the second coming of Christ. Right, so um, it was an interesting thing that happened um, this past week. Of course, you know, for those of you who are going to Israel with me, don't worry. Um, I talked to our guide today. I skyped with him, um, and he was at home. Um, <laughs> put it, he'd had a, he'd had a nice day. Uh, you know, he's been busier than ever. The tourists are you know more. Um, there's it's just. It's a fact of life in Israel that some that stuff happens in different parts of the country. Um, when I lived in Chicago, you just didn't go to the South Side, you know. Um, you didn't. You just didn't drive down there and then get out of your car and just go walk around, you know, because um, you probably would get mugged. Um, I, I did one time. I actually got off the train in the wrong spot when I first moved there, and I was walking down the street, and I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> one of these things is not like any other, right? Um, and so I'm like, well, that's cool. Um, and this guy walks up to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I have no idea. And he goes, you need to turn around and get back on the train. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, he was kind, right? But, you know, there are places you just don't go, right? You know, and so the same thing is true with Israel. So, I'm a, so as an aside, there's always something happening in Israel. But... This past week was interesting um, because uh, you know we had the, the, the you know moving the embassy to Jerusalem, and this is a big debate that goes on. But here's the thing that was that was really fascinating. There was uh, the people that Trump invited. Uh, there were two guys that Trump invited to, to be part of that ceremony. The religious leaders. Um, one of them was the the, the pastor of First Baptist in Dallas, Jeffers, um, which you know. He's a big supporter of Trump. 
And, uh, you know, so that was probably a, the other one was John Hagee, who was in San Antonio. Now, John Hagee, if you, if you Google him and you go and look at some of his stuff, um, just Google dumb things John Hagee has said, okay? Um, and then you'll start seeing, like, this is, this is still happening, right? Um, so John Hagee's desire is, to, uh, is that, that things go to heck, uh, there um, in a lot of ways because that's going to bring about the second coming of Christ. You know, so this is all stuff. Um, you know, they, don't, they may not say that outright, but I mean, it's in their, it's in their stuff. I mean, I've read his stuff. Um, you know, this is very important to them. And they're very, they're very sincere. They believe this. They sincerely believe this. Um, so this is still happening today. This is not something um, that was in the past. It's not some 70s kind of thing with communism and you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it, it's still going on. People are still doing the same thing that they've always done, which is to try to find meaning in the things that are out of control all around us. And the and, and a way to do that is to try to, to find some scripture to help them do that. Um, and revelation is, is something that is, has been used and misused in that context. But here's what makes it so fascinating, right? Everyone loves a good story. And revelation is kind of an awesome, weird, strange Incredible story. Um, it's Star Wars, right? In a lot of ways. You know, I mean, it's fantastic. You know, I mean, we love the fantastic. We love the over the top. We love the things that, you know, are hard to describe. Um, you know, the, the what makes Star Wars such a great movie is because of its fantastic characters and creatures, um, the not so subtle symbolism um, the evil Nazi-style imperialists, you know, and then, you know, through various iterations of the of the the series, they always have different groups of bad people, you know, um, that that sort of not so subtly represent other groups of bad people on the outside. Good versus evil, cosmic battles. I mean, all this stuff is going on in Revelation. Um, there was a really uh, um, there's a really popular was really popular for a while, but the the series The Walking Dead. Has anybody ever watched that? I mean, it's, it, it, don't be shamed. It's, it's, it's all good. I hate science fiction, but I like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it's more than just a zombie movie. It's more, more than just a zombie story. I mean, it's, it's characters and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's post-apocalyptic, you know, it's a dystopian future. There's so many movies that are out right now about a dystopian future. Um, when I say dystopian future, what do you think, what am I, what am I talking about? I mean, it essentially it's the opposite means, of utopia, right? Right. It's like <laughs> hopeless, <laughs> right? Um, so, I mean, think about those kinds of movies, you know, where, like, it's the future. And, the, the, I mean, have you ever, how many movies can you name off the top of your head where, the, where it talks about the future as an awesome place? Back to the what dreams may come okay but again there was a dark side to that as well too right but i mean yes so there was that was that was all about death and you know how far are you willing how far would god be willing to go in order to redeem that's a beautiful movie actually about grace uh and salvation but there's very few right most of the movies about the future tend to be really austere and horrible. Um, there's one that's out right now, Ready Player One. 
um, that you know that the you know it's it's about this dystopian future where you know video games and you know reality and is all meshed and mixed up and all this stuff. So really, uh, you know, we're still kind of you know fascinated by this stuff. Like, what does the future look like? You know, is it full of zombies and government conspiracies and tribulations um, and into the world scenarios, violence, faith and hope and faith and hope lost and then found again? And then we've got not so subtle movies like Armageddon, <laughs> you know, right? Um, that the title in itself is about the end of the world, right? Um, and that one was the great the Bruce Willis movie where they go and they blow up the thing that's going to destroy the world and they have the Aerosmith song that everyone yeah. loves. Um, I'm not going to sing it. So uh, then there's movies like The Day After Tomorrow, Independence Day, and of course uh, Left Behind. Right. So Left Behind uh, was, this, was a, a book series that was created by uh, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. Um, I think Tim LaHaye passed away Tim LaHaye was one of the early guys with Hal Lindsey and Salem Kerbin and a few of these other guys that during the 70s was writing about all this stuff. You know, so they were writing um, you know, pop theology about Revelation, connecting it to things that were going on in the world around as well. Um, Hal Lindsey and Salem Kerbin you know, eventually mm -hmm. kind of aged out of that. And, but uh, Tim LaHaye hooked up with Jerry Jenkins, who was a fiction writer, and the two of them began writing this series uh, called Left Behind. And it was wildly popular. Um, millions and millions and millions of copies um, of stuff that was loosely based on uh, things within the text of Revelation, uh, basically taken out of context and so forth. And assuming um, a lot of things about the text that was based on on the, the teachings uh, that teachings that really were never part of Christian tradition until the 1800s, um, the, the, the idea of dispensationalism, and there was there's a there's these dispensations of time within which things are going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they were writing those books, and of course everybody, you know, because it's a good story, and they were pretty good stories. Um, and I read the first couple of them before I <laughs> I was like thrown up in my mouth, you know, like, uh, it's not my cup of tea, right? It's not my, my kind of book. But lots of people loved them because they were engaging and, um, you know, they read them and assumed, assumed that it was correct. And so then they make the movies. Um, the movies about them were um, the, the first movies they made with uh, Kirk Cameron. They, they, did, they did terribly and were terribly done. Um, so they tried to make one that was better done, and then they <laughs> inexplicably hired Nicolas Cage to play the role, <laughs> and so everything went downhill from there. So every attempt to try to figure this out um, is, is, you know, kind of not, you know, it just hasn't really taken. The books were wildly popular, I think, because they sparked people's imaginations. I think the movies kind of squashed the imagination part of it. Um, but at any rate, uh, that's what they were all about. They were trying to figure out how do you take this story that's within here, apply it to, um, you know, a real sort of context, and bring it to life? And they did a great job of doing that. Um, I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna bring a copy of my Left Behind video game that I have. I'm not, I, I, I can't show it to you, but there was a whole cottage industry of this, including, including, 
um, you could you could buy cards um, that you could set up to be sent um, uh, after the rapture happened. Oh. I'm not I'm not I'm not lying. Um, that you could after the rapture happened, you could you could have these cards that would be sent out to all of your friends and neighbors that you didn't think were Christians, uh, so that they would be then uh, told, you know, hey, now you got a second chance. You know, I'm gone. I, I got raptured. Um, sorry about that. Um, but so so this is but this is but see here's the thing, the this was um, this was serious stuff. You know, like people were very serious about this. Um, and and here's the here's the thing, where you know we laugh because it does sound absurd, but deep inside, deep inside of everyone that's trying to reach out and figure this out, is a longing, a longing for something. I I, I just want to know that all of this is worth it. That all of this effort. All of the things I'm trying to do to live right. I, I just want to know that there's there's that this whole story ends well, right? And so the book of Revelation um, helps us to get to that because the story does end well, you know, at the end of all of it. All right. Um, so how do we read the book of Revelation? Okay. So. Um, there's several different ways that you can read it. First of all, there's the, the futurist. There's the futurist way to read the book. So um, reading Revelation with a futurist mindset means that um, it's primarily predictive prophecy to be decoded in order to stand, understand what's going to happen. Some of the book, however, is read in historical context, okay? Um, because you can't really get away with it. Has anybody ever read through the whole thing? Okay, that's your assignment for next uh, week. Seriously. It's 21 chapters. You won't understand some of it. Maybe not any of it. Um, but, you'll, but there will be parts of it that you will understand um, because there will be, it's, it'll be all of a sudden crystal clear, right? There's a whole section where the, John the Revelator is speaking to the churches, the seven churches, and it is very clear that he's speaking to real people in a real place. And, and, and all of a sudden, so you realize there's a historical aspect to this. Um, and, and so uh, some people will say that this is what the Revelation is all about. It's a predictive prophecy. We have to decode it um, to understand what's, what's going to happen. And some of it, yeah, is written in historical context, but the majority of it is predictive. So this was actually renewed in the modern age by Catholics um, during the, remember I said there was a Catholic Reformation? Mm -hmm. So they renewed uh, this sort of um, way of reading the book as a way of reacting to Protestants who were accusing uh, the Pope of being the Antichrist. So they were saying, so instead of going, you know, you're just all mean and heretics, right? Um, they were actually making a theological argument and were, were looking into the text and saying, no, that is not in fact um, what the text is saying. Uh, the text is predicting something for the future. 
there was a way of shifting the, the, the conversation. And so that really began uh, in the modern age with Catholics who were doing that. But then uh, in the 19th century, uh, there was a man by the name of John N. Darby. Uh, John N. Darby uh, heard about a young woman in England uh, who had had a vision when she was in church. And in this vision, she saw Jesus uh, essentially reaching down and and taking the church away. Uh, and um, so he was he was really interested in this in this vision that she had, and, and he wanted to explore it. And so he went and had uh, an interview with her at conversations, and then he started to um, gain this idea um, that perhaps what she saw um, was what was really going to happen. And so then he began to search through the scripture to find uh, places within the scripture that sort of matched this vision that this young girl had had in the church. And so there's a passage in the uh, first Thessalonians chapter four, where the apostle Paul talks about uh, the second coming of Christ or the, the, you know, the, the, the day, um, you know, the day of the Lord. And so, you know, he said uh, the dead in Christ are going to rise first uh, on that day, uh, which is, which is a, a, a very, which is Jewish as well. It's a Jewish uh, belief. Um, so for those of you who've ever, if you've been to Israel, um, for those of you, there's a bunch of you in here who went with me. So you remember we were standing on top of the Mount of Olives looking down to the eastern gate um, of the city. And there's all those grave, the graves over there, right? So some of you have seen photos of it, like the Jewish burials where they have the, you know, they, they have the, the, looks like little mausoleums or little tombs. And then they pile stones on top of them. So there's a whole bunch of Jewish burial sites, and then there's a Christian uh, burial sites below that, and then on the other side, right next to the gate, is the Muslim uh, graves. And so all of those traditions believe that there's that when the Messiah returns, um, then they will rise. Those people are will rise. You know, well, <laughs> if you're Muslim, you believe the Muslims are going to rise. If you're Christians, you believe the Christians are going to rise. And if you're Jewish, you believe the Jewish. So, or if you're just you know, if you're just cool, you know, then maybe all of them will rise. I don't know. Uh, so, but that that's kind of the whole thing, you know, that, that, so the dead in Christ will rise first. So that was his belief, right? And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to, to meet the Lord. We caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Um, I'm using the old King James because that's how I memorized it when I was a kid. So that Darby believed was confirmation in the Apostle Paul, that this was uh, the rapture, what he called the rapture based on what the young woman saw. So then he begins building a case for all kinds of other things um, as well. Uh, you know, for whatever comes next, what happens after the, the church is snatched away, um, then all kinds of other stuff happens. And so um, John Darby had all these teachings, which um, in England uh, did not go over well. Uh, so he tries to teach this in England, and they're like, <laughs> you know, poo poo, old man. You know, so they go send him packing back to America, and oh, strangely enough, Americans loved it, right? So um, a lot of American Christians caught this this idea. Um, there was a man by the name of Schofield um, who took a lot of the teachings that John and Darby had taught, 
and created a Bible that had a reference. How many of you have a Bible that has like, um, it's like a study Bible and it's got like stuff underneath? Okay, so the Schofield Bible was like that, but the Schofield Bible um, actually had references uh, that backed up um, what John and Darby was teaching about the rapture, about the tribulation, about, you know, all the things that were supposed to happen after the rapture. So people began to read the Schofield Bible, um, and it became a popular uh, version. In fact, it was still popular all the way up through the 70s, um, and some people still use it today. Uh, even though most of the most, most serious biblical scholars would not think that the Schofield Reference Bible is, is something to be... Um, it's it's not to be it's it's not to be uh, believed, right? Um, as that there's there's all kinds of alternative uh, and probably and much more accurate ways to describe you know to describe what Paul was talking about in that context in the So anyway, um, so then in the 20th century, um, the futurist view was picked up by uh, guys like Hal Lindsey and the guys I've been talking about. Uh, Salem Kerbin was a guy who wrote about this. He had a book called 666 and another one called uh, 1000. Um, and, uh, and eventually they were published together and I have a copy, um, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, and, um, then of course Jenkins and LaHaye, um, John Hagee, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, they espouse this approach, which honestly affords the highest degree of literalism of all the ways to read the book. So what that means, so this is the, the highest degree of literal, literalism. What do I mean when I say that? Things are going to happen exactly the way it says. Yeah. Exactly. That's not symbolism. This is not symbolism, except for the part that's symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, because, you know, literalism within Revelation is in degrees, you know? So uh, it's not, I think even the people who would afford it the highest level of literalism would say that it's not all literal, not all literally true, that there are metaphors and there's ways to describe, you know, they'll, they'll attach that to some parts of it, but then there are other parts um, that they, they lift up. Since many of the things in the book have not happened literally, okay, then they must, they, these folks believe, be predictions for the future. Okay, and so... There's all kinds of different approaches to this. There are people who are obsessed about the numbers in Revelation, because there's always these numbers, as we're going to discover. Seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lamps, 24 elders who got into heaven, uh, you know, six things, you know, you know, like, I mean, the beasts and so forth, you know, seven-headed uh, dragon, I mean, there's all, or, uh, yeah, seven, seven-headed dragon, you know, all these different kinds of things, you know, so there's all this stuff that, uh, it appears like symbolism, but yet these folks are affording it a literal translation as that it, this is a prediction about something that is going to happen. So the problems with this futuristic view is that it renders most of Revelation irrelevant uh, to the first audience that that it that was that read it, um, and it gives air it gives an arrogant sort of pride of place to the the reader who's reading it now. Does that make sense? 
So it's basically like, who cares about the, <laughs> the first century context, right? This is for us. Um, you know, this has to be for us, right? Um, there was no predictions for them. Uh, this had no meaning for them except as a prediction of something that was going to happen eventually. Um, so that, that's a problem. John himself regarded the message of Revelation as unsealed or revealed. I mean, there's always, every, you know, everything gets broken open. Everything, there's only a few things that can't be said um, in, his re, in the, the vision that he has. Um, you know, there's only a few things that he, that he can't speak of. Maybe even, maybe, I think it's maybe just one. Um, so this stands in direct contrast to these prophecy experts who claim it's being revealed now in current events. You know, so when John is basically saying, you know, you know this, he's, he's telling these people, you know what this is about, right? I'm giving you a symbol of a seven-headed beast, a seven-headed dragon. You know what that is, right? So if you ever read a political cartoon, um, which political cartoon, trying to say to uh, millennials, or not millennials perhaps, but to kids my age, you know, hey, um, tell me about a political cartoon you've seen recently. <laughs> They'd be like, what? You know, but we used to read them, right, all the time in, in the papers. So um, when you read a political cartoon and you're looking at it uh, and you see a grotesque uh, elephant and a weird-looking donkey doing something, we know what that means, right? So a thousand years from now, do you think people will know what that meant? <laughs> you know, just an image of a of a because people don't necessarily talk about uh, the GOP as an elephant, but when it's drawn, we know what they're talking about. You know, um, probably the most famous of these that were were done during like the 19th century in the, in New York, um, and I think his his name was Thomas Nast, um, and he did. Um, the ones about Tammany Hall, and you know, for the, some of you remember that from way back when, when you, you know, when you took some of your American history. And so he would he would show like he would he would show these overinflated characters, you know, these fat cats and stuff that were, um, and you know, so there the images that he was using were very clear um, to the people of the day. They're not quite as clear to us even now, only a hundred years or more removed, right? We will look at some of those political cartoons, and we don't even know what we, we, we have a hard time trying to understand exactly what it what it is. So um, John was writing in word pictures that these people he would be, he's like kind of giving them a wink, you know, like you know what this means. Um, so that really blows up the, the the way that these guys are saying that this is about the future. It kind of blows up their argument. That's two ways it blows it up. The third way. Uh, when it's combined with dispensationalism or this idea of a secret rapture of the faithful, um, it renders most of the book irrelevant to Christians in every age, except as an act of pro prophetic voyeurism um, over the fate of all of those people. So, you know, what's the point? You're going to get snatched away anyway, right? <laughs> Who cares? Except... We really want to see these bad people get it, you know. So that's kind of kind of what happens there. Uh, there's too much uh, there's too much that has been uh, staked in these texts 
as kind of clairvoyant literature, right? You know, that's, and, and there's a logical end to that, okay? The logical end of placing this emphasis on sort of clairvoyant literature is what? Like, think of the worst thing that you could think of in terms of the logical end of someone using that as clairvoyant literature. There's like two, two instances that I can think of there in modern times. Could you repeat what you said? Yeah. So if you think of it as prophetic or clairvoyant literature, okay? Um, what's the lot? So if that's the way that you that you read it, okay? What's what's the logical sort of end to your argument after all is said and done? Like where could that possibly lead you if you decided just to open yourself up and just be led by that fact? Aha! Right. So Jonestown. Jonestown is the logical end and Koresh. Both of these figures, right? So Jim Jones and David Koresh, so the, the in Waco. Okay, both of these figures um, were were constantly reinterpreting Revelation. It was the logical end of this idea of Revelation as prophetic. So you don't know, you don't have to wonder what it looks like um, when people are using it to really say this is what, because what would it lead you to do? If you really thought that it was all going to end, okay, you would follow somebody into the middle of nowhere, and if they said, it's upon us, right, you would kill yourself, or you would go down, you would go down and flame, right, so... This is this is kind of the, the logical end of that. Um, so, uh, his, the, so the second um, way of reading it is uh, historicist. So historicist um, point of view. So historicist is that it's a prediction of events spanning the time between the book's composition when it was written, and then the day when there's a new heaven and a new earth. So it it's, it is a prediction of sorts, but it's unfolding, right? So it's kind of being revealed in history, okay? Um, this is the most intuitive approach to the book because the book begins um, with an address to actual churches from actual places in an actual moment in time. Right, so they could say that's where we start. You know, we're going to start there and move our way forward. Um, and it offers milestones which give readers uh, an indication as to how far we've come. You know, <laughs> what do kids ask when you're on a road trip? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? Humankind has been asking that question for a long time. Are we there yet? <laughs> right? So it's like yes, almost. Right? There's still. There's still stuff to be done. That's why people get so excited, you know, when, like, all of a sudden things start to happen. Oh, this might be it, you know? Sad thing is, is that most of the time, those things that they're sort of getting excited about are horrible things, where people are dying, and, you know, there's, there's terrible stuff going on. Sometimes it's just, you know, like the European Union thing, you know, countries, you know, coming together and, um, you know, trying to figure out their economics and borders and so forth and so on. Um, not very well. Um, 
as it turns out. But at any rate, um, you know, that was kind of an innocuous thing, but yet people read into that and got very excited about it. So there was a guy in the 13th century um, whose name was uh, Joaquim of Biore. Um, you can look him up. Joaquim um, was revolutionary, and uh, he had this—he had this point of view. He had the, histori the historicist kind of idea. But what he believed was that there were uh, three ages of, of, you know, history, human history. Um, there was the age of the Father, the age of the Son, and the age of the Spirit. And so, what he did was he read Revelation as a prediction of events from the time that, that uh, John was writing it to those churches um, all the way up to his own time. Um, and he named, like, the Holy Roman Emperor and Saul al-Adin, uh, you know, the, the Muslim uh, leader that kind of that, that plagued the crusaders in, in Jerusalem, that these were among the heads of the beast. You know, so he's, he's, he saw it as like, okay, there, there was a progression, we're here now, and then there's something that's coming. So in his mind, he believed that he was still, that their time period was still in the age of the son. The age of the father was sort of the Old Testament, you know, that, that time period. The age of the son had begun even long before Jesus arrived and then was continuing. And then he believed that there would come an age of the spirit, which would be the final age. There's something kind of beautiful about his approach, honestly. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't quite agree with him in the way that he read Revelation, but I think there's something beautiful about the Trinitarian sort of approach to the ages of understanding um, and Revelation. So it's kind of kind of interesting. If you, it's worth a read, um, if you really dig 13th century <laughs> theologians. <laughs> All right. So um, Martin Luther actually took the same approach uh, mm -hmm. with his historicist view, and he did some mapping as well. Uh, once he got over his having his uh, um, his robes in a wad over uh, having Revelation uh, put into the, the, the book, uh, into the Bible, um, he started kind of doing his own mapping and says, oh, aha, suddenly, um, you know, he says the Roman church is Gog and Magog, uh, and the Muslims are, are sort of seen there as well. And so this sort of reading of the book became, was really popular through the 19th century. The problems with the, the historicist view is that it's uh, highly Eurocentric. So it was, it was created by um, European, you know, Western sort of thinkers. And so it, uh, it sort of treats Asia and sub, the Southern Hemisphere as objects. So it's not a, it's not a very broad, um, you know, understanding. And it doesn't take into consideration the nature and purpose of apocalyptic literature. Uh, that it's or oriented toward last things, uh, not just the historical past, right? And so what, what that means is that apocalyptic literature is concerned about the things that are going to happen, right? So whatever comes next. It is, it is concerned with that. You know, that's part of the conversation. Um, but it's not so much hung up on the historical past all that much. You know, it's, it doesn't, doesn't really pay it that much attention only to, to help it move, you know, sort of 
move forward and give a little bit of meaning so that you can understand, you know, like how you need to be going forward. So this happened. The, the world is, is going to heck in a handbasket. Now, how, how do you live, right? Now that all this stuff is all up in the air, how do you live? Um, and it also, this particular view uh, assumes that the biblical past has exhausted its meaning. So, like, we don't need to learn anything more from that. You know, the, the context doesn't matter all that much. It was a starting point, and now all that really, all we got to worry about is kind of how to interpret it now and, and moving forward. Okay, does that make sense? All right, look, I know that this stuff is pretty heady, right? But the reason why I want to do this is because, um, you know, there's, we're going we're gonna to get to, in, a, in just a moment, um, how we're going to read it. Right? So we're not reading the book any of these ways. Right? So. Do, you have a, do you happen to have an example of what they would, a certain event in Revelation that they interpret as something that happened in their time of their, I'm just curious um, as to what they Luther did. would have seen, um, what he did was he, um, he associated the Roman church with the, the, um, the whore of Babylon. Okay. Um, so he connected it with that, you know, because he saw Rome as Babylon. Um, and that, the, you know, so he had all these connections with what the, the church had done, you know, kind of whoring itself out. All these nations have come and, you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like there, there's this horrible... There's a horrible image in, in, in uh, Revelation. There's a lot of work that's been done on this uh, from a feminist point of view uh, in the use of that image of the whore of Babylon, which is the thing. I'm not trying to be provocative or mean or anything. I mean, that's just that's what it's called. Um, and so there's this horrible sort of thing that happens. You know, so that's the, the use of that kind of imagery um, is, was, is pretty, pretty rough, you know. But that was, that was the way that they kind of viewed... Um, that's the way that the that John is viewing Rome, but see, um, Luther didn't view it as Rome. He, he viewed it as the Roman Church, mm-hmm. and so then the Antichrist was the Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so affixing that to 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 the Pope. Um, it seems like this is almost kind of like whether you just whatever age you're in, you can tie that to it. Right. Whatever works for you. That's the historicist point of view. Exactly. Like you can, as you're moving along, you can find, you know, spots in there that that tell you where you are in the timeline, you know. Um, and so that that's what Luther was trying to do. Um, the, there's a, a preterist. The preterist view uh, believes that Revelation contains predictions that were filled almost completely in the past, uh, except for the very few pertaining to the end time. Now, this one is very appealing, right? Um, so what it means is, yes, um, you know, this was prediction. There were predictions in here, and all those predictions came true, right? And all that stuff happened. You know, like this was, um, for those who believe that it was written before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, that that was, you know, there's it's somehow embedded in that. It was predicted. But, you know, here's, we're also predicting the fall of Rome, uh, you know, and, and that's in there as well. But, you know, you don't have to be a genius uh, to predict the fall of empires. I mean, that's what happens to empires, you know, is that one day they're, they're no longer an empire. You know, if they're lucky, they still get to be influential like the British, right? Um, and maybe one day, you know, 
that'll be our lot in life. Um, you know, but at, at any rate, um, you know, that's what happens in parties. But so they would say that, yeah, these were fulfilled in the past, but there's a few that are still left to be, pre, you know, predicted. Um, you know, like the stuff that's going to happen, the new world, the new Jerusalem, that kind of thing is going to. So they read it as predictions starting from the first century to the establishment of the Christian state under Constantine. So some people read it like that in the in the early days. So once Constantine, um, so for those of you who are not familiar, um, in like the mid 300s, well early early 300s, um, the Roman Empire Roman Emperor at the time Constantine had a vision, and in the vision um, he was basically told that if he would fight under this symbol that he would win, and it was the symbol of the cross. And so he had the symbol of the cross put on all of the, you know, all of their stuff. They went out, they won. So he became a Christian. <coughs> um, and so because the emperor was a Christian, then everyone was a Christian, essentially. You know, so that that's kind of how it all began. Um, his, <coughs> his mother was actually, uh, Helena, um, was actually very devout, um, and uh, at least according to tradition. And so, um, at any rate, there was like this new age that sort of came, you know, now. Like, here's all this persecution, all this horrible stuff, and all these things that happened to the, the Christians and all the way up through the, you know, the, the Roman Empire. And then now, all of a sudden, the, the Roman, the emperor is, a, is a, and is creating, you know, beautiful churches and, and cities and so forth that are now, I mean, it's easy to start believing at that point that this has all come true. You know, this is, we're, we're now in it, right? Um, others read it radically as being completed, completely fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. So they read it as being written before Jerusalem's destruction, and then all of those things came true. Uh, they see it as a, as a prediction of, of Jerusalem being, being destroyed. So here's some problems with that. Again, um, it sort of says the past really doesn't have any meaning um, for the present and the future. So when I read this, I don't really, there's, I mean, it's all about the past. I can read it, and it's nice to read and interesting, but it really doesn't speak into my own context. Um, it ignores the nature of this kind of literature, uh, as we've talked about, the apocalyptic literature, and the ways that this book has been formed in the in the, the Christ, Christian tradition. So, in other words, sort of saying, uh, who cares what kind of literature this is? Who cares if it's meant to to speak and be the the words of these things are are timeless, right? Um, that that's not that's not a consideration for us. That whoever is writing this is writing something that's true for every generation. That's true for every age. No, 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 no. It's only true then. Or only, you know, because it, it it's done. We don't need to, I don't need to go back and really kind of mine that for, you know, this is what happened. Now, you might be able to find a few things here and there, devotional stuff from, uh, you know, the, the letters to the churches. You might be able to find some inspiration in the in the, the scenes in heaven with worship and so forth, you know, and, and this sort of hope towards a day when, uh, you know, all things will be made right, blah, 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 the shalom of God. You know, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, yes. But most of the book is sort of in the past. So that, that's kind of what the preterist view does. So then um, there's a way to read it that's called uh, the idealist or spiritual. 
And if you're going, I don't know why we're doing all this, it, it will make sense by about week three, okay? <laughs> See? I got to build a foundation before we can build a house, right? So all this stuff. So what we're doing is, um, you know, for those of you who, um, if, you've, if you've taken, uh, you know, classes before where you're where you're kind of doing philosophy and you're doing things like you have to understand the different ways that you know things can be done and thought about and, and, and spoken about um, so that then the instructor will tell you this is how I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna speak about it right All right so uh, there's an idealist point of view where revelation is a collection of symbols and vivid imagery and dramatic action to express transcendent truths that are valid in every generation. Now that sounds even better than the Preterist, right? Mm -hmm. So Justin Martyr um, uh, was, uh, he, he was writing in the, listen to this, he's writing and thinking about these things in the, from 100 to 165. Okay, that's when he lived, right? So we're talking really close, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, uh, who was also writing about this. So Justin Martyr assumed the visions meant that the earth would be restored to paradise after a future millennium. There would come a day when everything was going to be restored to paradise. But he actually kind of set a time frame on it. Um, Irenaeus, uh, which is another leader, was writing from 130 to 200. And here's the inter interesting thing about, um, about uh, these guys especially Justin Martyr, and there's another guy named Tertullian, but they were so close to the apostles. They were like one generation away. And so some of these guys studied uh, with teachers who were at the feet of John, the beloved disciple, and, and other disciples. Right? So um, Irenaeus uh, insisted on a future millennial kingdom where the earth would be restored and made new. Victorinus. Victorinus wrote in 304, okay, so this is about 30 years before, 35, 30, 35 years before uh, Constantine. So Victorinus has the oldest commentary on Revelation, and he believed the book did not depict the final scenes in history. Um, it, ha you know, it had no sense of chronology. <laughs> Thank you, Victorinus. <laughs> But it was highly symbolic, you know, so he got the fact that it was highly symbolic. There's another, um, another ancient writer by the name of Origen, and I would commend Origen to you just to um, Origen was a man way before his time, um, writing from 185 to 254. He taught that there was deeper meaning and that the book was filled with metaphor. And then St. Augustine, uh, that Revelation could be read in all times and all places. That millennium was a way of speaking about time as a totality, right? So this sounds appealing to us, right? Um, and I believe, you know, the interesting thing is that when were all these guys writing, right? So Augustine is uh, in 430 A.D., and then all the way back, so you got Justin Martyr here. So here's Augustine in 430, so there's a period of about you know, 300 and some odd years when this particular point of view was being lifted up 
and was getting traction and then just got squashed, uh, you know, like later on by other ways of interpreting it. Um, and honestly, this helps us, right? This, their, their writing and their thinking help us uh, in the way that we're going to be reading it um, as well. But it does have some problems. So it doesn't account for John's own perspective of what he would have believed was the imminence of the stuff that was going on. Like, this is now, right? Um, this isn't just symbolic, right? That there's a sense of it going on in the moment. Um, and so it doesn't really account for that. Um, and it passes the primary symbols um, with the realities of first century socioeconomic political issues facing John's audience. So it just kind of glosses over like all of their struggles and all of the things that were going on around them. Um, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't give it a lot of credence. It just says, hey, this is all, always symbolic. You know, and doesn't really think about, like, there's something that needs to be said about that context. Like, like reading it as those first century Christians that were reading this, that's got to be important. Does it mean that that's the be-all and end-all? No, but that's got to be important. It's got to be part of it. So the way that you can approach, so before I get to my, the way I'm going to teach this and the way we're going to read it, um, you can approach Revelation in two ways. You could be overly credulous, right? That it must be taken at face value and literally. Have you ever met somebody that did that, that you, as you talked to them, you were like, okay, um, they believe that that really is going to happen, you know? Um, now, I don't know how that made you feel, you know, curious, um, frightened, I mean, whatever, right? Um, but you you instantly knew that that was a person that was overly cre uh, you know was overly credulous about it, like they really bought into the whole thing, like this is going to happen. So the the problem with that is that there's a lot of imagery there that can be can be harmful and has been harmful. So when people have have taken the overly credulous route, like I'm going to believe this. Um, there's imagery and language that's used to dehumanize women and to foster uh, xenophobia. What do you need, buddy? Okay. Well, you need to go in the other room, okay? I'm sorry. Or go sit next to Papa or something. There you go. Okay. Um, there's no one at home <laughs> right now, so poor guy. So, um, so that, that's a problem of being overly credulous is sometimes you buy into some of the language as well. And there's a, there's a hostile dualism that is existence in an overly credulous uh, reading, right? What do I mean by hostile dualism? Well, if you read into that, like, you, it's really, like, it's real black and white, right? There's a people who are, are in and people who are out, right? And it can be taken to extremes and lead to fanaticism, as we see, right, with Jim Jones and um, with Koresh and, you know, gosh, there's like a whole bunch of them, you know, that, that do that. And there are people even today that are continuing to take it to, to extreme and to fanaticism. Um, so you can't, and here's the other part of it, too. Um, there are things that, if you're being overly credulous, there are things that um, you can't just assume to be God's will 
uh, when reading it literally would seem to violate God's will, like God's sort of nature. Um, and there's a lot of things in the text that seem to violate that, you know. Um, so what happens is when you read it over in an overly credulous way, you begin to, um, to affix some stuff onto God um, that belongs in another uh, era, perhaps, another era of understanding. You know, because in, you know, in ancient, ancient pre, you know, pre-modern, way pre-modern times, right, in ancient times, um, you can understand why people would be a little bit confused, um, you know, about the outcome of things and the way that they would speak about God and how God, you know, and there's, this is a big controversy, you know, did, did God really tell these people to go kill everyone in that tribe over there, you know? Um, so, you know, <laughs> was that like a dog outside or was it someone's phone? Yeah, someone's phone. Oh, okay. I was like, I was like, man, someone, there's a, the rabid beast outside. So, um, at any rate, um, so some people, if they read that over in an overly credulous way, they're going to start saying, oh, yeah, well, this is obviously what God is like, right? Uh, God is judgmental and angry and, you know, just can't wait to tear this whole thing down, man, you know? Um, and, and so it kind of it kind of puts, the literal reading really puts a lot of that stuff onto God that, that probably um, that's not very helpful. And, and really understanding the text. So you could be overly credulous or you could be overly cautious. Um, you know, that, that's, these are two ways to approach it. There's, I mean, and then, of course, there's just being able to enter into it. Now, being overly cautious um, is when you say revelation should be held in suspicion, that it is at best metaphor and at worst fantasy. Um, and uh, these readers will jump too soon to the conclusion that the text doesn't really have anything to offer except a dated, anthropological, strange, weird message. It might give us a little bit of an inkling of what was happening during the time period, um, but really there's nothing, there's nothing there. Um, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. Um, it's not prophecy. It's not really anything, right? Um, this approach does miss the chance uh, to really um, appropriate the witness of that text and to take some of the stuff that's going on in it and apply it to your life, you know, to like do what the early readers were doing. Um, so you can be overly credulous or overly cautious. We're going to be right down the dang middle, right? We're going to be in the middle. So here's how we're going to read it. We're going to read it um, in um, a... This is, and, and I came up with this. Now, somebody else may have thought of it as well, but I came up with it on my own um, as a way of sort of reading this. We're going to read it with a contemporary historical point of view. So, in your studies and all of your I think that um, I think that most of the classes that I took uh, that had to do with the apocalyptic books um, 
basically gave a lot of they they gave more credibility to the historical moment probably than the the contemporary sort of application but didn't but but it wasn't like but it, but you know you know what i mean but it wasn't like this was only about what happened in the past it was only about that there is there are things that you can you can read into it so it was, it was essentially like how do you preach this stuff um you know how do you how do you how do you kind of figure it out you know um there's only so many so for for preachers who preach from the the lectionary um there's not that many verses from revelation that are in the lectionary um, and all of them really kind of look towards the future of a time of when the shalom of God is on earth and there's a new everything has been made new. Um, and then there are some uh, lectionary texts that would deal with the, the letters to the churches that part. I think my question is about would be something that is given through your previous instructions and classes that led you to the contemporary. They, they wouldn't. They, my the. Professors that I had would never, would, didn't call it this, but essentially that's what they were doing. So they, they what? That it's all of the above, like all of these things. Some, that these some, some parts of it almost every one Yeah, there. I think that the contemporary historical view. Well, let's let's get through it, and, and then we'll, it'll kind of show. So, the what it what essentially what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to approach it from this point of view. That the apocalypse, the revelation, was written specially for the benefit of certain people who were living at a certain time and for the purpose of being understood by them. That that was what its purpose was. So the revelator, John the Revelator, was not writing, thinking to himself, gee, um, I wonder what... Leon Bloder is going to think of this in the year 2018, or you know, what future people are going to read this and wonder? Um, you know, he he wasn't that was not even part of his thought process. He was a um, he was a pastor, uh, and um, probably would have been called a prophet uh, to the, the these seven churches, and so he traveled to each of these churches and you know ministered to all of them, and so they were his concern um the the power of the inspired the, the inspiration part of of scripture is that the holy spirit and this is kind of the reformed understanding of that that when we when we read it the spirit speaks to us uh and and lifts out the things that we need to hear for our own context but to be oblivious of the original context is to, is really to do violence to the text. Um, so it was meant to be understood by these people, but but there is meaning to be extrapolated from their experience and understanding of the text for any time and any place. So it's like basically taking the guys that say it was like that it was spiritual and idealist, you know, like um, Augustine and Origen, those guys saying this could be read anywhere. And we're going, yes, it can, but you can't forget the fact that there was a context, and that context is important for us to understand our own context. So, honestly, almost all scripture should be read like this. That's the way we should, but I just listed a whole bunch of ways that people read it. <laughs> 
So people read the scripture all kinds of ways. But honestly, this is this is how the text should be read. Okay. So here's what it does: is it opens up a wider range of interpretations that really pay close close attention to the social location of of when this was written. Um, and this is what all, also what it does is it opens the door then for um, a lot of different kind of ways of thinking about theology. It opens the door for them to come in, right? So liberation theology finds a home in this in in this particular approach. Um, feminist theology and feminist theology is not what you would what most people would think. Um, because it has become overused, the, the, the term feminist, um, you know, it, it, uh, I think for a lot of people who are on the forefront of the feminist movement, they feel like their, their phrase and their wording uh, got, got hijacked to a certain extent. Um, and so there's another strain of, of stuff. I know this is really crazy, isn't it? Like this is, this is actually a thing, like in theology. Um, so when people are kind of interpreting scripture and trying to figure this stuff out, um, a feminist approach to theology is actually really helpful because feminist uh, points of view look to the margins. So it's like who's on the margins, and then so you know, and so a guy. I mean, it doesn't matter. You can be a woman and be a feminist, a man, I mean, black, white. It doesn't matter, right? So you know, when you're looking at things from a feminist point of view, all you're doing is saying, okay, they're on the margins. I'm going to go stand over here and tell the, and tell the story. So how does the story of the Samaritan woman and Jesus change when you stand with the Samaritan woman? When suddenly you're not standing with Jesus. Most of us want to stand with Jesus. They, oh, Jesus was so awesome. Look how he welcomed this poor Samaritan woman. You know, he was he was doing, you know, but when you stand with her, then all of a sudden the story is 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 even deeper and has deeper meaning. So so that you know the same the woman that uh, reached out and touched Jesus' robe on the field, you know, that's a way of identifying. Um, with the people on the margins. And so feminism does that. And this allows that to happen. For some of these other, the literalist point of view, it can't be bad in a feminist because it, it does violence to women uh, in, in the, and people in the margins. Um, you know, so uh, liberation theology, feminist theology, and then um, <laughs> because the feminist theology has been adopted by guys as well, and we're like, yes, um, you know, women were like, well, you know, that's it no longer, then it, it doesn't fully speak to our experience, right? So then there's a there's womanist uh, theology that makes its way in as well, and futurist uh, theology where, you know, we're starting to think about are, how are the things that we are doing now affecting future generations and what do we need to do about that? So, um, and then, then it also is just for regular old people like you and me who just want to know, what the heck is this book about, right? Um, and, then, and then further, like, how do I take all of this weird stuff and how do I apply it to my life? Because honestly, there's such beauty in this book. There's such unbelievable beauty here. And there's a cyclical way of, that the book sort of unfolds where, where in this whole movement of all these things, you feel like everything is going to blow up and everything's going to fall apart, and then all of a sudden it, there's there's grace, there's worship, 
there's you know there's God's voice speaking. There's things happening, and then it then it comes back around again, and it feels like everything's gonna fall apart, and all of a sudden, ah, there's grace, and then at some point in time, then everything gets made new. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like you know, the, he's just telling these people, I know you're gonna go through. This is the way life is, man. And you guys are in a bad spot. You're going to go through some cyclical times. There's going to be good times and bad times. There's going to be wars and the rumors of wars. There's going to be terrible things. And yet, you need to hold on. Hold on. <clears throat> Don't give up, you know. Um, and so um, we're going to be reading uh, this uh, with this particular context. Um, this isn't application by extracting uh, timeless principles or predictive prophecy. What we're doing is we're doing something called recontextualization. Okay, so <coughs> we're taking, we're looking at the text in its context, and then we're saying, how do we, how do we, how are we similar to these people? What is this? What's similar about our own situation? Do you ever? think it's funny, I mean, when you start thinking about all these different eras and all these different people over time have all thought that this book was about them. <clears throat> hey, guess what? It kind of is. You know, I mean, but it was really written to these people who were going through some of the same kinds of stuff that you're going through. Um, and so the lesson still remains, but you got to understand what they were going through first. So that's kind of what we're going to do. Okay. Uh, hmm. Not sure like where I'm going to go from here because I got like 15 minutes. Um. Why don't we do this? Uh, let's just breeze through this really quickly. So we're going to be reading uh, Revelation as a letter, okay? So it says, what will we be reading? It's at the bottom of page five. So we're going to read uh, a Revelation as a letter. Uh, so we know that it, that's what it was. Um, there are seven churches. Um, he's speaking into the realities of these churches. Um, we're going to read uh, Revelation as early Christian prophecy, but not actually a, as a prediction, um, but like I said before, it's not about prediction. It's about, um, you know, here are, here's a word, a word of the Lord to you uh, about what, you know, what may happen. Um, and it's written to people who need guidance and encouragement. Um, they need to repent. Uh, they need to be instructed. They need to renew their commitment. You know, so it's like, you know, this is, this is the kind of the, the work of the prophet in this particular uh, context. Um, so predictive prophecy ignore the sort of primary purpose of prophecy in the Jewish tradition. Um, so in the Jewish tradition, which is what John was, the revelator is writing in, this is not a hard and fast statement about an unchangeable future, right? So he's just basically saying this is what could happen, right? Um, it's sort of like, uh, Charles Dickens in the Christmas Carol, you know, the ghost of Christmas, uh, yet to come. Mm -hmm. You know, he's given a vision of what his life could be like, of what life the world would be like if he left it, which is, you know, no one cares, right? Um, and so he seeks to change that. So this is, that's a prophecy. Even though it did not 
Um, you know, it wasn't a hard and fast thing. He had to do something in order to change it. So we're going to read it as early Christian prophecy, so to speak. Um, we're also going to read it as apocalypse, which is really, you know, kind of what we've been talking about. Um, it's a revelation of divine mysteries that come through visions, dreams, and other paranormal states of consciousness. So, um, John, um, sometimes called the John the Revelator, John of Patmos. Um, so John, we're going to learn about him, but he was um, he was exiled to this island, this this Greek island, which is absolutely beautiful, by the way. Um, it's anybody ever been to Patmos? Yeah, it's stinking awesome, isn't it? And so you can go into this cave, um, which is where, and then there the place where John um, allegedly laid down. Um, and then had the vision inside the cave, which is a which is a, a chapel, of course, uh, Greek Greek Orthodox chapel. And uh, but you know, there's something about it. Like I mean, like you're when you stand there, like and I stood there and I looked down at this spot, and it had been worn from so many people laying on it. Um, and there was something beautiful about that. You know, like that you're standing there as part of this sort of, you know, it's a continuum. It's pretty crazy. Um, so John kind of pulls back the curtain, right, um, to re to unveil what the empire is all about, which reminds me of, you know, the great moment in The Wizard of Oz. So that's what he's doing. You know, he's given this vision, and he's like, look and see what it is, right? This is what they really are, you know? Um, they, they're telling you that you can have everything if you just, you know, live like them. You can have success. You can have all the things that you'd ever want in the world. They tell you they're bringing peace. Um, they tell you they're doing this, right? They're bringing prosperity. But, but all of this comes at a price. And here's the price. And here's what it costs. And here's what's going on. And, and so he's just like, you know, pulling the, the, the curtain back that, you know, Oz the great and terrible. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man, right? Um, and, and so that's that's what John is doing with this with this vision. Um, there's always two camps in in um, apocalyptic writing. Um, there's good and evil. You know that that's just the way it is. There are those on the side of God and those on the side of darkness. And it's not always easy to see um, which ones are which until until there's there's a, a, a judgment. Right, and by judgment I mean until there's someone who can can clear all the the stuff aside and reveal, um, you know, these this is who's this is who's on the side of the Lord and who isn't. Um, and the cool part about this whole thing is that in the end, um, God continues throughout Revelation, as you see, God continues to try to give grace and continues to try to to reach out to people. Um, so one thing that we need to understand as well is that uh, because it's apocalypse, um, that everything has meaning. Persons, animals, events, natural phenomenon, colors, shapes, numbers, everything is, is imbued with meaning. There's, there's nothing that's just arbitrarily and casually just written. Um, he is specifically writing these things in a, in a particular way because he wants the reader to understand. In fact, we're going to read one passage where he says um, that the beast 
you know, the, the beast has a human number, right? He has a human number, and his number is 666. And he basically says, you know, because that's that old, you know, the let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, or it is a human number. Its number is 666, right? From my one of my favorite Iron Maiden songs. <laughs> it was a song about uh, a Nathaniel Hawthorne book, which is an ap apocalyptic story, um, but a Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, book called Young Goodman Brown, or a story called Young Goodman Brown. So in Young Good Good Goodman Brown, uh, his wife goes out at night. He doesn't know where she's going. He finally follows her and finds out that she's a witch. But not only is she a witch, everybody in the whole village is a witch. Um, and... Um, so that the song is about that, about the number of the beasts and so forth. So anyway, um, it's a scary thing, right? Um, but uh, and we've all seen the omen, you know, the Antichrist. He's got the number on his on the top of his head, and you know that's pretty pretty horrible um, uh, movie. You know, that was that was stinking scary uh, way back in the day. Anybody ever seen that? Did you guys ever yeah. watch that? Um, <laughs> go watch the old one. Like the new ones are are pretty awful. The old one wasn't quite as scary. Uh, they had like Gregory Peck in it, I think. And um, and uh, anyway, uh, so you know, his he gives birth to his, his you know the devil uh, somehow lies with his wife, I guess, or something, or or, lie, or some. I forget exactly the story. Or with with somebody, a friend of theirs, or something. Or they end up adopting him, or something. I can't remember. It's horrible, right? But he's got the number on top of his head, 666. Um, but in, in, the, in the book, in the Revelation, what he does, though, is he says, he goes, and you know who this is. Right? It's right there in the text. You know who this is. So we're going to discover who that was. Right? Because it was a person. He was referring to an individual. Right? Um, so Revelation stands within a long tradition of apocalyptic writing. So in our uh, Bible, we only have one. Um, but there were others that were written along the same time frame um, and a little bit afterwards. There was first Enoch, um, which was used by the, the Qumran communities. Um, so there was a group of people who believed that the world was going to end uh, in the Jewish tradition. So we're, we're, we don't have a corner on the market on people who think the world is going to end. <laughs> there are, uh, for example... Um, ISIS is an apocalyptic group. Um, their purpose is to bring about uh, the the day of the Lord. That's what they believe their purpose is, um, to initiate this whole thing. And, and by doing so, they have to establish this caliphate and all this other crap. Um, and then, you know, then it finally happens. So that's, they believe that that's their purpose, right? Um, they weren't quite as... Uh, they were they're they're a nasty bunch, um, you know, and they're they've come from a long line of nasty bunches of people who have done this kind of thing. Um, but the Essenes um, were uh, were a particular group of Jews that uh, decided you know that they weren't going to be involved in the conflict, and so they went away um, and they went into the desert uh, and uh, by the Dead Sea, and so they're the ones that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right? So that when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, that that was their community. Uh, but they they wrote these, some of these books of um, First Enoch and Fourth Ezra. You know, the Fourth Ezra was a Jewish response to the destruction of Jerusalem um, in 70, and it was considered by uh, Christians to be authoritative. You know, like they they believed that they they used this as scripture. It didn't make it into the Bible, 
Um, Second Enoch, Second Baruch, Apocalypse of Abraham, the Testament of Levi, the Sibylline Oracles, Second Esdras. Um, these are all books that were written during this time period, um, but never made it into the, the Bible. Uh, Second Esdras included a winged, a 12-winged eagle, a talking lion, and a weeping woman who turns into a city. Hmm. Right? So, you know, there were other people who were writing and writing to their, their friends, you know, writing to people and trying to encourage them and were using apocalyptic literature to do it. You know, was it, was it a way of writing in code, perhaps, um, where you were writing so somebody would understand you and maybe somebody else didn't? Yeah, possible. Um, but it was meant to be revealed, right? So we're going to, here's what we're going to do as we read uh, Revelation, and I'm going to close with this. Uh, we're going to read critically and openly. Um, a strict literal interpretation of Revelation is is not possible, um, as I as I as I said. Even the strict the people who say they strictly uh, interpret it literally, there's holes all in that, right? Um, because there are some things that they do and some things they don't. So it's neither possible nor desirable. And we're not being asked to figure this out, so to speak. All we're being asked to do is to enter into the vision with with John, okay? And then we're going to remain open to what the apocalypse has to tell us about its original audience and anything that can be um, contextualized, like recontextualized into our own time, okay? So we're also going to abandon our certainty, <laughs> right? So acting with certainty is a trap that too many people fall into when it comes to reading Revelation. Because there are uh, transcendental forces that are present in reality um, that lurk behind human persons and groups, and to dismiss this notion as fanciful is not helpful. So in other words, there are, there are evil things in the world. There are powers that exist um, that are lurking behind things. There is, there is a... There, you know, do you know what I mean? And if you don't believe me... Um, if, I mean, I have encountered the I have encountered evil um, when I when I was at a when I worked at a hospital as a chaplain and I was called to talk to this kid who was a, um, an, an addict and he was going through withdrawal and they had him strapped down and you know um, every so often he would show up just for an instant. And it was like those movies with The Exorcist where, you know, like suddenly the, 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 the demon lets hold of the child or whatever, and, and, they're, and they're there for a moment. And then, you know, the next thing you know, they're <laughs> throwing up on the priest or whatever, you know, yeah. like horrible thing. So I'm freaked out, right, uh, because I'm like seeing that, this, that there is something happening there. You know, addiction is a demon. It is evil. Poverty is a demon. It is evil. War is a demon. Bigotry is a demon. I mean, we, you know, call it what you may, right? These are the principalities and powers that Paul was talking about when he talked about these are the things that we're struggling against. This is what we're fighting against. So um, to, abandon your cert to abandon your certainty means to say, 
I'm going to open myself up to the the idea that that the the revelator writing in the first century had a point about the evils of this world and and the things that are going on that there is something bigger that is is happening um and that that we are part of this struggle um but that we also ultimately um are part of the victory uh, of this struggle uh to assume we're going to abandon our certainty that to assume that there's a way to determine God's specific plans. See, this is the this is the big argument, right? Against the whole like we can figure we can use this to figure out uh, what God is going to do. Ha! <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, really? I mean, are you better than Jesus? Because Jesus even said, "I don't know." <laughs> They're like, "When is this going to happen, Jesus?" And he's like, "I don't know." Even the sun has no idea when all these things are going. You know, like I mean, now Jesus also had this idea of something, and this is this is another thing too. So we also can't assume a whole bunch about like the who's in and who's out stuff. That's the certainty that a lot of people come to this text with. I know that I'm on the inside, so this isn't about me, except for the parts that are really good. The parts that are bad are not about me. Right, because I know that I'm on the inside. Oh, really? Uh, do you? You know, I mean, because uh, Jesus had really interesting ideas about who was in and who was out. You know, because when he said he talked about the sheep and the goats, um, and or the people that you know uh, were ushered into whatever utter darkness and stuff like that, these were the people that had said, you know, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils? Didn't we do all this stuff? And he's like, I don't even know who you are. You know, because the people that Jesus claimed that he knew were the ones who had done, you know, what was right and, you know, in terms of the least of these, right? I mean, so so there was an interesting sort of dynamic there. Plus, there's there's this whole parable that Jesus talks about that's an apocalyptic parable that has to do with uh, planting, right? And so they, they come and they, they realize, hey, there's weeds in our, our wheat. Um, and they say, who done this? Well, who did this? Well, an enemy has done this, right? So what is, you know, they go, well, we should pull everything up and get rid of the weeds. No, because if you pull the weeds, then you're probably going to pull some of the good things up with it, leave it all, and at the end of all things, we'll figure it out. Right? So this is kind of along those lines that it is God's job to decide uh, all this stuff and not ours. Right? Um, and so the certainty is something that doesn't really work here. Okay. Uh, and then we're going to move forward in hope. Right? So we're just going to, we're going to, there's a, um, there's a guy by the name of Jacques Ellul, and he was like, you know, are you, are you really, is all you're seeking when you read the scripture is a mediocre uh, consolation? <laughs> is that really what you want? No. You know, we want, I want like a good ending to the thing, right? You know, I mean, I, I want it all to turn out. And so you can thumb your way through the very back and find out. Hey, it actually did turn out. It's amazing. You know, I mean, it's one of those books that you can actually go to the end and read the end first and then go back and start reading the other stuff, right? You know, because, you know, sometimes when you're reading through some of the Old Testament, you're like, wow, this sucks. Uh, you know, this doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere great. So it's just like, okay, I'm going to go remind myself of what really happens at the end of the whole thing, right? Um, so we're going to go forward and hope. God's coming awesome transformation of the cosmos is appealing and it's not appalling. Um, when I was a kid, I used to worry that the rapture was going to happen before I learned to drive. 
Um, I dreaded, I dreaded, you know, the coming of the Lord, right? Um, you know, and lots of people do that, like, oh, you know, Jesus, could you just hold on, you know, until, <laughs> until whenever, right? Um, but, but this transformation that, that is talked about here is, a, is appealing. It's not appalling. It shouldn't bring dread. Um, so as we read this, it's going to bring us joy. It's going to bring us hope. So um, that's, that's the end of whatever, whatever I have to say.